Well, thank you, Amy, and it's a delight to be here. And uh, I want to thank the Association for Mindfulness and Education, and in particular, Amy Salzman and Gil Fransdale and the committee for inviting me here to, I guess, launch the, uh, the public uh, lecture series on the subject of mindfulness and education. So I deeply appreciate the uh, invitation and the privilege to be here with you tonight. And, um, and I'm always kind of amazed when people come out to hear uh, me talk because much of what I talk about is nothing. <laughs> I should say much ado about nothing. It's becoming more and more and more ado about nothing, only it's not quite nothing. Um, but so uh, there have been various sort of uh, representations of the title of the talk tonight. The one that I'm going with is Igniting Passion for Inward and Outward Learning um, and the Promise of Bringing Mindfulness into Education at All Ages. And Amy mentioned love and, and was intuiting that you came out here tonight uh, out of love to a certain degree and, and, and that's why the title is Igniting Passion because I think that, that uh, love and learning are very intimately related and uh, to the degree that we can ignite passion for learning in uh, others or keep it alive in ourselves uh, to that degree we continue not only learning, but growing to a certain degree, healing whatever woundings we've experienced over the course of a lifetime or being thwarted in our original intentions or, or loves. And ultimately, the potential for not only learning and growing and healing, but uh, for a, a something akin to transformation. Uh, or transmutation, which often in the fairy tales is that moment when the frog turns into a prince or something shifts and, the, and what was dross becomes gold or what was hidden becomes revealed, although it has been present all along. And fairy tales are really famous for that. And one of the reasons that children love them so much is that they know in some very, very intuitive way without ever us having to break the spell by some kind of uh, explanation that these stories are really about them. That they are, and all of the characters in these stories are really representations of aspects of the psyche including the wicked witch and the ogre and the troll and the princess and the king and the queen and the lake and the dwarf and every other creature in these fairy tales are representations in some sense of the beauty of being human and the complexity of being human and the challenges of being human and of finding our true way. And we all, I think, intuitively know that it is valuable to find the true way. Your own gold and uh, luminous uh, embodied potential. 
And it seems to me that what education is really all about and learning is all about is that adventure. And to a large extent, uh, in our society, it's been an outwardly focused adventure. That has to do a lot with um, putting things into little people so that they will accumulate more and more and more of the right kinds of views and tools and and uh, and skills and capacities so that they will be able to, in some sense, function as adults in our society uh, when they grow up. But, you know, sometimes I ask myself, well, wouldn't it be nice if we grew up? We who are already adults. All you need to do is look at the Congress or the White House and, you know, you sort of wonder when we're going to wake up or grow up. And I say that equally oriented towards the Democrats, the Republicans, and every other identification of a particular kind of view. Because what I'm talking about is something that has more to do with being human in its wholeness than with a particular kind of view, ideology, or, uh, or a belief system. And part of the beauty of mindfulness is that it really is empirical and is, in some sense, pointing towards what I consider to be the final common pathway of what makes us human, in spite of all our differences and which tribe we belong to and all the tribal allegiances and and how arcane uh, and fear-driven and greed-driven all of our sort of interactions can be on any and every level from the personal to the institutional. That in some, as the Dalai Lama loves to say, everybody really wants to be happy. Everybody wants to satisfy that deep inner yearning for wholeness. Uh, even your most you know, sworn enemies really are looking for some kind of satisfaction and well-being and in some sense, even peace of mind. So the beauty of mindfulness is to me that it in some sense delineates a final common pathway of our humanity and one that has the potential to actually be recognized as what makes us most human or most beautiful or most uh, miraculous. And that has to do with our capacity for paying attention. Sometimes that paying attention comes in the form of hearing, <laughs> which is quite miraculous, hearing. So thank you for the cell phone. Um, it would also be nice if you now just made as many noises as possible in turning them off, just so that we could have some kind of protected time here that, uh, that is so hard to find in the world because of all of the various kinds of interruptions, outer interruptions that happen. <laughs> Just keep it coming. Shut them off. And notice as you're shutting them off how much anxiety has arisen, you know, as you're shutting them off. Or if you have to have them on because you've got babysitter at home, put them on vibrate. Or if you don't know how to do that or it doesn't work that way, just leave them on and we'll deal with it. Uh, but since hearing came up, I mean, just the miracle of hearing. 
We don't know actually how it happens. The neurobiology of hearing is not all that well worked out. And we create a whole world out of, of sound. And yet, if you start to pay attention to hearing, you can very rapidly realize that a lot of the time you only hear what you want to hear. You don't hear a lot of things. Has anybody that you dearly love ever said to you these words or something like it, you never listen to me? <laughs> Why do you think they say things like that? It's because even the hearing is very selective. Same with seeing. Same with every one of the senses, of which there are more than five. So, this sort of universality of uh, the sort of final common pathway of being human has a lot to do with attending, being present to the world. And there are these different aspects of the world. We sort of fragment the world into lots of different aspects. One is outer and the other is inner. And my point was that a lot of our educational system is oriented towards the outer and not so much toward the inner. And we do a lot of fragmenting in that regard. How about subject and object? When you went to school yourself, and do you remember you had a loose leaf book and you had various like colored things that separated the different classes that you were taking, and those classes were in different subjects. Yeah. And when you pay attention to something, you yourself are the subject, and what you're attending to is the object of your attention. Hmm? So actually, when you're studying a subject, it becomes an object of your attention. And if you've gone to sort of college and graduate school, at a certain point you may have picked up the idea that being objective is really good. Because you get outside your own bias you know, field and you can really see things as, as they are because you're being objective. And science purports to be, you know, the cat's meow when it comes to objectivity unless you know any scientists. <laughs> because the thing about science is you have to bend over backwards to be aware of your biases or you will not possibly be able to be objective because the, the subjective element enters into it so much in terms of you know, what the Buddhists just bravely assert as greed, hatred, and ignorance, you know, but that can arise even around... Uh, pursuing your career, getting grants, being in competition with other laboratories. I mean, there's all sorts of subjectivity in science. And if you want to read a wonderful kind of uh, mm, thumbnail autobiographical sketch of it, read uh, Jim Watson's book, The Double Helix, about the story of the competitive uh, discovery of uh, the, the structure of the three-dimensional structure of DNA. So what I'm going to be talking about tonight has to do with weaving inner and outer together and understanding subject and object in ways that differentiate them and also understand the links between them. Okay? Because very often as observers, 
we make ourselves into the observer and then there's the observed. And what gets disregarded actually or ignored is the observing, which as I was suggesting with hearing, we don't know how we do anyway. So we see but we don't know how we're seeing. If you look up in the sky, I mean I use this as a common example, uh, you know, or you see anything say of the color blue. There's no real blue, there's just electromagnetic radiation of a particular wavelength and frequency. And our, there's no blue in the eye either, in, in the retina, but somehow we have or build, the brain builds an experience of blue and can differentiate it from red. You know, and we don't know how we do that. And we actually build the experience of we're all sitting here in this room and we're agreed we're all sitting in the same room, but we're all sitting in a slightly different room because the light coming in through the eyes and then taking in the whole thing is different depending on where your location is in this space. And so are we sitting in the representation of the room that the brain is putting together in the occipital cortex and associative areas or are, you know, how, what is our relationship to the outer in terms of the inner? So in the domain of uh, science now, there is more credibility in part because of the study of meditation in the notion that there are different ways of knowing and that each has its own validity or field of validity and it's really important to honor the range of them if we hope to understand the, either the beauty, the, the simplicity or the complexity of experience. Because the one thing we really don't understand is experience itself. Don't know how we experience things. Yet we do. And, and it's a very profound part of being human. We are not robots, we are not automatons. But we are often really out of touch, which is another sense, okay? the sense of touch. If you go and look it up, as I have in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word touch is the longest entry in terms of mileage in the columns of the Oxford English Dictionary of any word in the English language, including love. And they're like thousands of ways that you can touch or be touched, including being touched in the head or a little touch of this or a touch of that or a touch of the flu. Touch is absolutely fundamental, bringing the one and the other together. And, and in the process, you have touching. Okay. So in education, it seems to me, the root of that word uh, has to do with drawing out and nurturance, bringing along into sort of uh, a more elaborate, developed uh, dimensionality of being that, of course, humans are capable of if we nurture our potential and nourish with ways of knowing, facts, of course, skills, trainings of various kinds, and I would say, underneath it all, subtending it all, love. Just what Amy started out talking about. And, and I don't mean this in any kind of romantic way, but I mean it in terms of like, the passion for being in touch, 
for being in relationship in a way that is so uh, nurturing and so uh, illuminating and so adventurous that it contributes to a sense of belonging or a sense of connection, a sense of inhabiting a world that um, that holds us and that we belong to and that is full of uh, interest and that gives us the potential to feel like we're learning and that there's an infinite amount to learn so we'll never come to the end of it which is in itself a lot of fun growing which is itself I mean I like to quote around this point you know around growing from the great yogi Bob Dylan who said if you're not busy being born you're busy dying you know so growing is like the time to grow is while you're alive don't wait till you're dead okay and why not start like real young actually in a sense you could say we do all start real young and then there's a certain way in which society can kill it or damn it up at least or ignore it in certain ways and the same for healing and transformation that it all in some sense boils down to that so how might we ignite passion for inward and outward learning so that we don't make them into some kind of other dichotomy or dualism but they both are part of it and as I was saying in science this kind of third person understanding is now being coupled with another way of knowing which is a first person understanding in neuroscience for instance if you want to study the mind well it's almost commonsensical that well you get someone and put them in the scanner and study them usually they're undergraduates because <laughs> they're cheap minds to study <laughs> um, and you ask them questions about their own inner experience in a particular moment when you see something on the EEG or in the scanner and usually they not real good reporters of what they're in experience what were you feeling in just that moment I don't know they're not really trained observers of their own experience if you take a Buddhist monk and put a Buddhist monk in the scanner First of all, you see very different patterns from an undergraduate psychology major. Uh, and when you ask them to do certain things that they claim to do, they can do them reproducibly over and over and over again. And in some sense, move in and out of them at will, which is like you know, watching an Olympic athlete do something that, well, I could do that too if only I was that person. It's not like, it's not like your body's any different from Lance Armstrong's. You've all been on a bicycle. But you aren't Lance Armstrong because a certain element of training, determination, passion, will, discipline, and pain is involved in you know, reaching that kind of inhabiting of one's life and body. And uh, in the same way, if you take you know, people who've spent their entire lives doing what Lance Armstrong does on a bike with their mind, and you ask them what was happening in that moment, they can tell you a whole bunch of different things that were happening in that moment because they are very, very highly skilled observers of the sensory dimension, the emotional dimension, the cognitive dimension. And, the, there's, and there's, how can they tell you? Because there's another dimension 
that we don't learn in school that much or that really seems so undervalued. It's almost like camouflage. You know how kids like to wear camouflage nowadays? You know, uh, stands out like a sore thumb because it's not jungle or not, not desert, but everybody's kind of camouflaged. But what's most camouflaged in our society is this capacity to know what we're knowing or know what we're experiencing. We even have a word for it. And we almost never give any credence to it as if it's worth actually noticing or exploring in its own right. The word is called awareness. The word is called awareness. I often was in the habit when I was in grade school of asking my teachers why we had to learn this, whatever it was. I mean, I thought it was a good question. Why do we have to learn this? And usually the response was one variant or another of, um, it's to help you become a critical thinker. Hmm? Sounded good. So I've grown up to be very critical and to be completely (laughs) overwhelmed by my thinking. And of course I'm, you know, joking about it, but the fact of the matter is that's an incredibly important uh, mental faculty, is the faculty of learning actually how to think critically and with discernment around abstract issues or more concrete issues. We've poured so much energy and attention, the educational system, into thinking. And even so, the results have not been that impressive. I mean, it's, you can read this over and over and over again in the New York Times and other such scientific journals that, that locating the Pacific Ocean is a big challenge for a lot of adults in this country. Never mind, say, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, Iraq, we, I think we have down now, but... Uh, <laughs> But for a long time, Iraq was like, you know, couldn't locate it. It was just an article this week in the Times about like how most of the people who teach science in the United States in high school weren't science majors. They never loved science. And therefore, in terms of like the Students that are being turned out that love science in this country compared to in, say, other countries, whether it's China or Japan or France or England or Germany, I mean, it's, it's, it really strains credulity that, you know, that we don't have a system that is, in some sense, more motivated by love of the subject that you're teaching. So there seems to me there's some big issues here, one of which is, and this is, I don't mean by any stretch of imagination to be critical of teachers who I think are like basically battlefield soldiers on the front lines of, you know, of some kind of warfare that's being fought out. And very, very under-recognized and under-compensated for doing that kind of work. And perhaps even undertrained or not nourished or nurtured enough 
to be on the front lines of this kind of thing. And we're talking about the body politic taking care of its next generation of citizens. Or you could say the cells, of the future cells of the body politic because it's a regenerative, regenerative organism, the, the country. So imagine that while we're learning critical thinking, we're also learning to inhabit this other capacity that's kind of like a hidden dimension. It's out there, but it's so camouflaged, called awareness, that we never receive any training in and almost never get any credit for. You know, no gold stars for awareness. And what kind of awareness are we talking about? Well, that's the beauty of awareness. You name it. It's such a big basket, it can hold anything. Uh, emotional awareness, which could be inner, like actually how you're feeling. How about training in learning how to have a hundred different ways to know how you're feeling? Very often the women, I, I notice, are smiling, you know, because compared to, I don't want to fall into stereotypes here, but very often like, Women know how they're feeling in a lot of different circumstances. Often if you ask a man how you're feeling, you get a couple of grunts, you know. And so, hmm. I'm not happy. It's not very nuanced. There's the whole spectrum here of emotions that if one brought attention to it, could actually see the landscape of like, what triggered that sadness? What triggered that anger? What triggered that fear? How much fear actually drives our actions? Even our learning actions are often driven by fear. So what if there was a certain kind of training in awareness or attention that sort of balanced out the training in cognition or thinking so that one could sort of expand the field of understanding of various phenomena and relate them to one's own inner experience. A lot of this has to do, and, and I've started to use the term awareness sing, so that we don't have to fall into, oh, now I'm getting into awareness, you know, or awareness of what, but simply awareness sing, so you don't have subject or object, and that's one of the beauties of the present participles, is that instead of like, I am breathing, you can just have breathing. Why should you claim that you're breathing? If it were up to you, you would have forgotten and be dead a long time ago. <laughs> well, I'm breathing. Nonsense. So, from the point of view of languaging, for instance, which is very important, this kind of thing, if you want to ignite passion in anything, part of it is, I've got to be verbal. I mean, we've got to be able to relate to whoever it is that we're teaching in a way that will like make sense and wake them up and open the space so that it's not like just imposing particular kind of knowledge base on them, but actually drawing it out. What do you see? What do you feel? What do you notice when we set a situation up this way or that way or some other way and turn it into like an adventure? I know teachers who actually do this in the classroom. And at any age, I mean, students, like, all of a sudden, like, 
There's some things on the website of the Association of Mindful Education, and I pulled some of them off in preparing for this talk, one of which was a chapter my wife, my wife and I wrote in a, in a book on mindful parenting about education in the classroom. And uh, I thought I'd just actually read you a little bit of it, because it, it speaks to just that. I mean, that kids actually love to pay attention to their own interior experience, especially if they're given tools for doing it, so that it's not just... I mean, there's plenty of talk in public school. I went to public school in New York City, and I got yelled at a lot to pay attention. But that doesn't actually ignite passion for paying attention. And in a sense, you could say, I was paying attention. It was just like, maybe the tree outside the window was more interesting than what was going on on the blackboard. And you have to be careful about that kind of thing. So, I... I worked for a time, was contacted by a teacher in the public schools in uh, South Jordan, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. So this is like a 95% Mormon community. And she had taken a mindfulness-based stress reduction program, which is the kind of work that Amy was talking about that we've been doing now for 27 years at the, in mind-body medicine or now Sometimes people call it integrative medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Okay? And this teacher actually went through that stress reduction program. And she felt it was so valuable to her that she wanted to bring it to her kids. And it's all based, I, I guess you could say, I sometimes do, sometimes just to provoke people, on Buddhist meditation without the Buddhism. Okay? It's not true, really, because... I don't want to get into a long thing about this, but Buddhist meditation is about without the Buddhism. <laughs> it's, it's about being human and about not knowing what that is and learning how to be comfortable not knowing, which of course any scientist knows that how important it is to be aware not only of what you know, which can be very oppressive, because it can take you so far, but then you have to, in some sense, be comfortable with the not knowing in order for something to reveal itself, to open, to have an insight of some kind or another. You've got to, at a certain point, let go of all the thought that got you up to a certain place, and then just be in the discomfort of, like, what could this possibly mean, and not know. And then very often, something emerges. An insight. And then you say, I didn't I see that before. Or someone else will have the insight. And then you'll really say, why didn't I see that? <laughs> so uh, she started bringing... Oh, so she said to me, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, bring this into my classroom. And I said, are you kidding? You'll get lynched. I mean, the school is 95% Mormon, and you are going to uh, bring what they will see as Buddhist meditation into your classroom, and you're going to be in deep doo-doo. <laughs> the parents are going to, you know, really think you're just kind of indoctrinating them in some other religion. So, here's a take-home lesson. Like any good student, she didn't listen to the teacher. <laughs> she just did it. 
And she's an absolute genius, and she figured out ways to bring mindfulness into every aspect of the curriculum. I'll show you some pictures. I have a few PowerPoint slides of it, and I'll show you some of them in a bit. But so she just wove this into uh, every aspect of the curriculum. She went to the Utah Board of Education, where it talked about what public education was supposed to be, and sure enough, it said there are four components to public education in Utah. Cognitive, somatic, intuitive, and emotional. And she said, what? I've never seen anything having to do with intuitive, emotional, or uh, somatic. It's all cognitive. So she took that as license to actually <laughs> get people to develop. How? By paying attention to experience. Simple. And through paying attention, they become aware of aspects of experience like how your body's feeling in this moment when some little fight unfolds in the classroom, for instance. How, can we just drop into awareness for a moment? And start, so you start practicing dropping into awareness. What's the best way to drop into awareness? Close your mouth. For a moment, let's just be silent with the feeling in the room. Now, people, you know, are okay with this if it doesn't go on too long. If it goes on too long, it's like, hey, wait a minute, he, he must have forgotten he's giving a talk. <laughs> it's said that one of the best talks the Buddha gave was sitting up on the platform. An hour goes by, nothing. There's 10,000 people out there. He talked yesterday, he talked the day before, he's scheduled to give another talk tomorrow, and today he's like sitting up there. Two hours go by, three hours go by. Finally, he holds up a flower. You know, there's a kind of flowers on the stage, he holds up a flower. It said 9,999 blank stares and one smile. And that smile is said to be the, the moment of the first transmission of, uh, I don't even know what word to put on it. Usually the word Zen is put on it. Okay, but Zen is just the word. But, you know. If you're taking it seriously, if you're stuck in, I wonder what he means. It's a nice flower, but we came here for a talk. <laughs> we paid good money for this talk. Or whatever it is, you know, thinking, thinking, thinking. You're going to have lots of thoughts about it. Start judging it. And your body's hurting after three hours of sitting, waiting for the guy to talk. He holds up a flower. <laughs> but one person like was like in the present moment. And said, So it seems to me this is what we want in the classroom. I don't care if we're talking kindergarten or we're talking graduate school. It's like, hello, are we even here? Let's practice actually being here. How? Dropping. Into silence, the stillness. 
If it feels weird, that's okay, because it doesn't have to feel a certain way. Yeah, let's, let's, when we talk about it, say, yeah, that felt really weird. Okay, so now let's just be weird. Let's see how weird it is. And then all of a sudden, you cultivate, what we're talking about is cultivating intimacy with ourselves. That's the actual vocabulary that they were using in this, you know, fifth and sixth graders in Utah. So, at a certain point, they sent me a bunch of letters about what mindfulness, what their stress reduction course meant to them and so forth. And I went out there and met with the parents and the teachers. And, and, and I asked a bunch of the, her colleagues, of Cherry Hamrick's colleagues, to write to me and tell me what they were seeing in her classroom. So this is one of those. A teacher in the school wrote, describing his experience of sharing an open classroom with Ms. Hamrick. Quote, the attitude and climate in her classroom was very impressive especially as I had not heretofore experienced anything like it. I, came away, uh, I, I became aware of certain vocabulary she used to describe things. She referred to what she was trying to attain as a functional classroom. I noticed a peaceful atmosphere in her classroom with the students cooperating and discussing their work together. Talking was encouraged, but only work-related talking and feeling talk was allowed. There was genuine interest and concern among the students and the teacher. They practiced talking about feelings and processing them on a daily basis. I noticed the students grow in their self-esteem and their regard for human life as well as all life in general. The students seemed genuinely happier and more content in the classroom setting than I'd ever observed or experienced myself. They expressed their love with appropriate touching, hugs in parenthesis, and they knew how to resolve conflicts and problem solve in a loving, caring fashion rather than in a hostile or abusive fashion. Ms. Hamrick also taught the students how to focus and how to get in touch with their own breathing and how to control their lives, their own lives with that technique. This is his view of it. Uh, we tend not to use the word control. They seem to be able to work better during the day after a few moments of meditative preparation in the morning. should have them sit every morning. And every day, uh, I brought uh, some bells if we do any more sitting, but I gave her a set of these bells. I, I've given them to all our kids' teachers. It's amazing what happens when you, say, ring these in a noisy classroom of, you know, in elementary school or even in junior high school or high school. Do you know how often teachers yell and scream at the class to be quiet? Imagine. And you learn to drop into hearing. So every day somebody would get the bells and it would be their turn to ring the bells and decide how long they were going to sit. And they guide the meditation sometimes pointing towards deepening stillness, or they just sit in stillness. They can't go more than 10 minutes. But ring the bells. So um, he's saying here that uh, they seem to be more able be able to work better during the day after a few moments of meditative preparation in the morning. We taught in an open classroom situation and their ability to focus and not be distracted by all the noise in that type of environment is a tribute to her application of training and drive. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. 
I remember in particular one boy who was described to me as the most hated kid in the school because he was like very severely ADHD and just bouncing off the walls and a big problem in the classroom. And I could only come on a Saturday one day. I came, they had school on a Saturday and they invited the parents. And this boy guided the sitting meditation with his mother sitting right next to him. I got to talk with her afterwards. And he, he sat for 10 minutes and guided this sitting meditation. And he sat. And he went from being the most hated kid in the school to being just a regular kid. It's, it's just interesting. All he was being trained in is how to drop in on himself and to honor interior experience. So in science, what I was saying was that if you wanted to study somebody's mind up until recently, you'd, or somebody's brain, mind, you'd study somebody else's mind. But what about studying your own mind? What about including the subject of experience and not having it have such a bad reputation, like, oh, subjective, so biased. But is there a way to be actually objective or less biased about subjective experience? And there is. And it's only thousands and thousands of years old. <laughs> and it's called meditation, but it doesn't come with... Of course, it comes with lots of baggage and in lots of different packages, but the beauty of mindfulness...